Welcome to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Uh, my name's Jeremy, and I'm here with uh, host David Gushy. And I have an ethical question about action. So right. here's, here's what I've been mulling over in my head. If I am standing next to the man who is recording the murder of George Floyd, what am I to do? Do, do I, because you watch the videos and we've, we've got a couple angles of it now. People are recording it. There are four police officers at this scene, three on George Floyd. One holds his legs, one hold, uh, kneels on his back and one kneels on his neck and one stands watch. There's a crowd of people that are watching and first reasoning He's not resisting. This is unnecessary. Get off of him. And then begging, please stop. You're killing him. And then screaming. There is a man begging for his life. If you are in this crowd, what is, what should you do? And, and I've been, I've run through it over and over. You have nine minutes. Do, do I as an individual, do I try to tackle Officer Derek? Uh, do, do I organize uh, maybe because if I tackle a police officer I'm going to get tased I'm going to get punched I'm going to get handcuffed I'm probably not going to get shot uh, do I try to get the crowd to march in that direction with me do I do I get really clever um, do I maybe grab all of the, the white people who have that hedge of protection that are there and we're going to march towards them I, I, um, I own a firearm do I draw on a police officer that can get me shot but it could end the situation what What am I to do in this horrible hypothetical you know um, I didn't think as I watched that video I didn't think about it in exactly those terms but I think it's well, as soon as I, I heard from you that this was on your mind, I thought back to, to hear, in the video that I saw, there's one main voice. You know the one that I'm talking about? Yes. where Where there's a guy saying, hey, stop, get off, and it's, there's a lot of cursing. Yeah. You know, what the blank are you doing, man? He's not resisting. He's not resisting. He appears to be, he appears to be an African-American person's voice. He's angry. He's, he's, he's his protest is being verbalized, but he's also being blocked from the scene by that other officer who is standing between him and that crowd and uh, and George Floyd, all those other officers. Were there all three officers on him the whole time? Yes. There's a, a video that's not as, not as expertly taken, but is from the opposite side of the street. Oh, okay. Even more awful. Yes, they, they should all be arrested. Um, it makes me think of um, this kind of classic question that came up when I was studying the Holocaust. Why? One one question was, well, why didn't the local civilians, you know, when when Jews were being taken out to the edge of town and being shot, why didn't local civilians protest to stop them? Or why didn't the Jews themselves fight back? You know, all those kind of questions that, that people always ask. You know, so. 
first talk at a little bit of a, of a kind of a psychological level. In general, when authorities are using force, most people are cowed into submission just because of, of the authority of the uniform mm-hmm. and, and fear of what could happen if you were to try to do it. Right. Okay, and by authority here, I mean not just they have the authority to arrest you, but maybe also a residual or still very strong sense of legitimacy. They must have a reason for what they are doing. It's, this is their job. I'm not a police officer. I guess uh, I guess I just better stay out of it. Right, and I, um, I've got um, law enforcement in my family. I'm, I have... Uh, uh, kin who are sheriffs, and I, I recognize that that's an incredibly difficult job. And so you've got these, yeah, you're like, well, there must be something I don't understand here. And that, by the way, provides an awful lot of um, cover for stuff that shouldn't be allowed at all, right? Right. Um, I remember I read a book for a review last year in the Christian century by a philosopher who basically said uh, all of that kind of what he called essentially mysticism around authority, state authority, including police, needs to be stripped from people and the actions of officials should be judged just like the actions of private citizens. And if somebody is doing wrong, even if they have a badge, uh, they should be resisted in exactly the same way as if a, just a regular person was doing something like that. Mm-hmm. So that was a very radical pr- perspective, but I remember that from that book. So that basically, um, the idea was to train a more resistant and more morally alert citizen. So imagine if that scene was unfolding and what we saw was three people in plain clothes uh, gradually uh, killing a man and and another person with a gun keeping the crowd away from stopping it. So try that thought experiment. If, if these people were not in uniform with badges, how would one's reaction to that scene be? Right. It would, it would have to be different, right? Right. It would look like an assault. It actually was. But it would be an assault without the protection of the law. And one would hopefully feel if you had some courage, had courage and, and means, would feel an obligation to try to intervene. I need to, uh, I need to give you the, the name of that book, and um, we and, can and, uh, we can uh, pull uh, it up because I, I did read yeah. it back when it came out. I know um, which one you're talking and about. I, yeah, and I wrote a review of it, and in the Christian Century, and the idea, the idea was, demystify authority, um, and so you demystify authority, the authority of the uniform, then you're able to see assault for what it is, you're able to see murder for what it is, and you're able to see your obligation for what it is. Now that is just the opposite of the Romans 13 discussion that we had in an earlier session, right? And it's right. just the opposite. Um, but the idea would be, and he actually says this in the book, that the kind of layering of mystical supernatural authority onto onto officials is actually very dangerous. That's kind of what you would say. It's mythic and needs to be needs to be abandoned. But let's go back. So that's challenging. 
not saying I embrace that, but it's an interesting idea. But let's go back to that situation. So part of the reason why people don't try to jump in there is because of the authority, the legitimacy. But what's interesting is when you are part of a community that has been mistreated by the by the authorities, by the police, by the criminal justice system, I think a lot of that mystified authority just isn't there. Right. I, my, I have you, a, from my privileged, <clears throat> excuse me, my privileged background, I have been taught uh, to respect authority. Yeah. I've been taught to respect the police. I've been taught to always trust the police. If I'm in trouble, if I'm lost, uh, I look for a cop. And that is what we're obviously all learning now, if you didn't already know it, is that that is such a racialized difference there. Um, I saw a, a, that, a t- yeah. someone tweeted, and I'll, I'll have to find it. Um, he had a blue check mark, so I think I could find it again. He, he said... Um, one time I used a, uh, I accidentally tried to spend a counterfeit $20 bill and I had to talk to the police and go to the police station. And it's a story that I sometimes tell at parties. George Floyd tried to use a fake $20 bill and he's dead. Alleged, alleged, right. allegedly. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's privilege. Um, so, so, that's absolutely right. So let's go back to the scene. Here's here's um, how I thought about it. I think, I hope, I would have attempted to use every ounce of my white male privilege to roar at those officers I see what you're doing. This is evil and wrong. And I'm going to see to it that you guys are arrested for this. Stop right now. Um, I, um, in other words. I will publish a book about you. I will. Yes, I will. I'm a local professor. Uh, I will use my access to the power that I have to destroy your careers and get you arrested. Um, now that would not have saved George Floyd's life but but that in other words your thought experiment made me think about times in which I have leveraged my privilege to defend members of my own family and people that I have I have felt the need uh, or the calling to try to advocate on behalf of mm-hmm. um, and I I would have I hope that I would have attempted to do something like that. I don't have guns and I don't have military training and I don't think that in a hand to hand hustle I would have done very well in that situation. Um, but but I I think I would have been less maybe less reticent to try to do something like what I just said because of the obvious outrageousness of it and because I think I would have felt protected by the, my gender and by the color of my skin and by my age and by my professional status. So I could have, that I could have tempted an intervention in a way where I might have lived through the day. Right. You know what I'm saying? 
you will not be that's shot how... immediately if you walk towards that scene. I think that's probably right. Um, it reminds me, have I ever told the story on the podcast of the time that I was stopped? No, uh, but you should, because it's hilarious. Okay. Um, near it's school incredible in that Atlanta, you got this way. I was stopped by a police officer. I was driving my nice used Lexus, um, black. Uh, stopped by a police officer. He came up to the car and he said, uh, do you realize you're you don't have insurance or registration on this car. And that was just a computer glitch on their part. But the deal is that I think they had just changed computer systems or something. And some of the, some of the registration and, and insurance information was falling through the cracks. And, and what can happen to you is if, if the police don't find the proper paperwork on your car, they can impound your car and take it away. Right. Um, and then you have to go through all the hassle to get it back. Um, and so while, while he was double-checking or triple-checking the status of the registration and paperwork, I called the insurance company. I was able to amazingly get through to the agent who was on the phone, who was confirming that, yes, I was a properly insured driver. And so while this officer was back at his car, I was wearing my suit. We had a big event at Mercer that day. I got out of my car with my phone in my hand, glinting in the sunlight, could be anything, right? And started to say to the officer, hey, I've got my insurance person on the phone. I can prove to you that this car is insured while walking back towards the police car. Now, when I told my African-American students about this, all just kind of shrunk in horror. Yeah. They said, you never get out of a police car out of your car when you're being stopped by the police unless they tell you to. You certainly never hold anything in your hand that could be misinterpreted. Which is anything. And you never anything. And you never walk in the direction of the police car. And they said I was lucky to make it make it through the deck. And it was another example of my privilege. I, I was I was confident that nothing would happen to me, but hey I've got I know the truth of the situation. I have the right on my side and here's the phone and I'm gonna and actually, he said, so what the police officer said was, get back in the car, very sharply. So I humbly, meekly got back in the car, but he did, he did take the phone from me, talk to the agent, agree that I was probably right, and let me go. You know? Wow. But I made it through the day. Um, so what do you think you would have done in that situation, Jerry? If I was pulled, anytime I'm pulled over, I, <clears throat> I have a sequence. The moment I think that they're coming for me, I slow way down. My emergency lights go on. I get into a, a parking lot somewhere where they can feel safe and in control. I t turn my car off. The keys go on the roof. And my hands stay on top of the... All the windows go down. My hands are on the uh, top of the steering wheel until they ask me to do something different. Uh, because that's what my sheriff brother told me to do. Hmm. And you what combine you that with yeah. um, the the layers of privilege that surround me, and I usually get out of tickets because of that. Wow. For a long... I was eight for eight on pulled over and not ticketed for a long time. Uh, I've, I've never been that fortunate. What do you think you would have done 
in, in Minneapolis that day. So I've been turning this over and over and over. And I think I have to act. I think I say, I say as many of the things as I can, like you're suggesting, that I let them know that I too am a person of some authority, that I am clergy, and I am using that, I'm speaking to them in that capacity, that mm-hmm. I have a platform that I intend to use against them. Uh, maybe I let them know about what connections I have. But if it doesn't stop, if it is clear that they're going to kill this man, I think I have to start walking towards them and force them to change their focus to me in a sort of direct, nonviolent action of me wedging my body into the machine so that it can't crush someone else because I'm more likely to survive the altercation. I think that's what I have to do. Do you think you would have done that? I don't know, because I've never had to. Mm -hmm. That's the only proper answer. Now, somebody who has... I recognize that thinking about it is like a power fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Sort of like, uh, I would have hidden Jews, or I wouldn't have... I would have helped runaway slaves, or anything of that matter, um... I know what I would have liked to have done. Yeah, it's all of those. It's, it's all of those uh, qualifying verbs. What I would have liked to have done. Right. right. And I've um, got. Um, yeah. I have three quotes that hang. Um, I'll take a picture of exactly where I'm sitting, and post it for our listeners. To the right, at eye level of my computer monitor, are three quotes. uh, One from Kierkegaard, one from Bonhoeffer, and one from MLK. Uh, Kierkegaard says to me, Every day, the Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obligated to act accordingly. Bonhoeffer says that that to be free, to be truly human, is to be conformed to the image of the crucified one. And then MLK calls out from a Birmingham jail, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. The Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice. And these three voices, I read them every day and they minister to me in their dialogue with each other because Bonhoeffer says, Pastor, your calling is to realize who you truly are by being conformed with the crucified God. Kierkegaard reminds me that I know exactly what that means. And Reverend Martin Luther King tells me that that's justice. And so I, I want to be the one who would hide Jews in my basement. I, I want to be the one who could be one of the righteous among the nations. I want to be one that 
is counted as an ally who who would be someone who could wedge themselves into the machine but it's I, I haven't been tested I guess I've I've risked my career but I've never been called to risk my life and, and I hope that I would here's a this may be a way to end the discussion um, that turns turns that question around um, in a way that I found very constructive. When I was working, you know, my first book, uh, listeners, it's called Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust. It's still in print. It was my dissertation. It's been out since 1994. In researching for that book, I watched a lot of video and read a lot of books, talked to a lot of people. Um, but one of the things was to see it from the perspective of, uh, in that case, the Jewish people who were hunted and harassed and who were looking for allies and for rescuers. And um, and there were a couple of testimonies by people who said, you know, as the days and months went by, we knew that we had to continue to ask for help of our Gentile or Christian neighbors, and that if we if we made the wrong choice, um, that it could cost us our lives. Right? You know, if you right. you ask somebody to you ask somebody to help you, and they turn out to be Nazi sympathizers, you may be dead that day. Right? And so, and so they said we we had to get really good, in fact, hundred percent good, at assessing the character of our neighbors. To ask, to figure out who to ask. And so that then raises the question, you might say, is the pattern of our action, the pattern of our way of life as ministers, as Christians, such that people in need of help would know, oh, obviously, I need to call James. I need to call David Gesson. Yeah. There, there's a, a test that uh, that my high school would do um, in my fundamentalist upbringing. I'm sure you've seen this before. It's always cast like you're you're in North Korea or Iran or something like that. Some bad place. Right? Yeah, you're put on trial for being a Christian. Is there enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> yeah. I'm wanting to be a better and better ally. Um, and I'm wanting to be kind of person who would be called. And, and that moral allyship, I think, is, is a lot of what Christian ethics looks like as we come to focus more on oppression, injustice, and the, the abuse of those who are powerless. So you might say that the fantasy sequence of I stumble upon that scene in Minneapolis and and I wedge my body into the system and I say, you're going to have to kill me to, to continue doing what you're doing. In, in one sense, it's a fantasy sequence. What's not a fantasy sequence is kind of what are we going to do today or what letters are we going to write? What, what advocacy are we going to do? What expressions of friendship are we going to offer and sympathy? Um, healing justice work will we do today that we can do that's probably the right question yeah we gotta we have to actually do something 
The Bible is yeah. very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to un- understand it because we know very well the minute we understand, we are obligated to act. Let's end it there, shall we? I think that's a good place. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jeremy. Friends, thank you for enduring three episodes of Two White Men Talking About Race. These are things that we are all having to think about and we're all having to deal with. And it is the call of the church, the responsibility of the church to get it right. May justice roll down through us before it rolls down on us. That's a good word. And that's really how the Bible how the Bible positions the prophet. Either align, we either align ourselves with the purposes of God for a just world, or we will be subject to the judgment of a just God. There you go. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercer University Center for Theology and Public Life. You can uh, find more about Center for Theology and Public Life at mercer.ctpl. You can find more about David Gushy at davidpgushy.com, and my material is at revjeremyhall.com. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. We're glad that you're here. We're humbled that you would listen. We ask that you would share if you found value in this. You'd like, share, subscribe, give us a good rating, give us a, a, some good feedback. It does a lot to help the podcast grow. Thank you, friends. Oh, my microphone's been muted. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've... I said some very dramatic and eloquent things. The last thing I heard was um, <laughs> the, what, what the second quote. It was the, I thought, terrible. wow, Jim's on a long phone call. <laughs> <laughs> no! I hate it when that happens. I was so proud of myself, I just slumped down my chair and thought my daughter would be proud of me. <laughs> Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs>